Well, all right. Here we are once again back at the kitchen table. I thank God for you joining us one more for one more. You know, we're in a series right now. We've been in a series about African presence in the Bible. And we're so glad to have this great street apologist, Vocab Malone, who's been systematically walking us through what thus says the Lord as it relates to African presence in the Bible, black in the Bible, but it's always from the Bible. So I want to welcome you once again back to the kitchen table, Vocab. Glad to be here, Pastor. Thank you, Pastor Amen. Hamilton, for having me. Amen. Okay, we have another topic today. We're going to deal with a topic that has eluded us for so long. In fact, we maybe haven't even heard this before, but it is truly there. We're going to deal about uh, African presence, black in the church history. We're going to we're going we're gonna to peel back the annals of time and walk back down memory lane a little bit. So, if you would, vocab, just go ahead and lead the way, my brother. Sure. Yeah. Um... You know, you hear about church history and often in our context, it has a certain slant or perspective or angle. And sometimes just in our imaginations, we we almost picture people a certain way. Sometimes it's because of icon art and what's called icon art. Mm. We know Protestants aren't that into that stuff, but we still see the stuff. And, you know, people still like to draw pictures and this and that in Hollywood. More so, obviously, of Jesus and Bible characters. But I think it kind of transfers over a lot of times when we think about uh, church history. Well, church history, ladies and gentlemen, if you're a Christian, that's our history. That's our mm -hmm. history. You know, we talk about different history. Um, I think it, I think things like American history and what um, we understand, you know, we just got done out of February, black history uh, and there's other kinds are, are, are important. I think for the Christian, the most important kind of history besides Bible history itself should be church history, the good, the bad mm -hmm. and the ugly. Mm -hmm. And people who are from Africa have been involved with the good, the bad and ugly throughout church history. And mm -hmm. sometimes we don't recognize that. Sometimes we don't realize that. We think Greco-Roman, and we're not denying that. Christianity came into a Greco-Roman world, obviously started there in Jerusalem as God sovereignly worked in that area of the world, but quickly spread out to the Greco-Roman world. And yes, the New Testament was written in Greek, and et cetera, et cetera. But what does that mean? What does that mean? Now, as we look through some of these folks and their contributions, we don't know, again, what everyone exactly looked like. Now, sometimes yeah. we have better ideas than other, but we do know that the African presence was felt early. And mm -hmm. so I'm going to be looking at some notes here. I have actually from an upcoming blog, and I believe people will be blessed. It's going to be coming out in a couple of weeks called Early African Christianity and the Holy Trinity. We'll start with that there. Okay. And so we're getting going to get into something called Antonicene and Post-Nicene eras mm -hmm. of Christianity. Antonicene mm -hmm. means before the Council of Nicaea and post is after the Council of Nicaea, which took place in 325 in Turkey, modern-day Turkey. And uh, one of the things that was discussed early was um, the relationship of the son to the father, and that's the whole controversy that primarily brought about the Nicene Council there, the debate about Arianism, is Jesus created, how is he like the father, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that relates to Trinitarian discussions, and so I'm going to discuss a little bit about that, that, and so you can kind of see how this all fits together, hopefully. So we're um, resting on scripture, the Bible says we have a great cloud of witnesses, but now we're stepping into the pages of history. Mm -hmm. Understand we're in a post-biblical discussion here. And the first person I want uh, to talk about here is Clement of Alexandria. Whenever mm -hmm. you hear Alexandria, remember Egypt. And if you remember Egypt, you remember it's in North Africa. Right. So 
originally, it appears that Clement was born in Athens. He's described as an Athenian. So that may or may not speak to what he looked like, but he still is Clement of Alexandria. That's how he's known because that's where his ministry um, – that's where his ministry flourished, and he he taught at a very important school there in Africa. So he, he may have been from Athens, Greece, but that's not where he set up his school. He set it up in Egypt, which is in Africa, and he has a great quote I'd like to share. This is a quote from Clement of Alexandria who lived about 150 to 215 AD. So mm-hmm. Jesus uh, is passed from the between 30 and 33, and now you're here in 150, so you're still discussing the early church. Here's a quote that Clement said. He said, having traced him out concealed in Egypt, I found rest. Seems to be Mm. talking about, uh, in essence, his journey to find Christ. Having traced him out concealed in Egypt, I found rest. And this is from a book of his called Stramata. And so he talks about his Christian mentors. And the reason why I want to bring this up is to show you how diverse the early church is. Don't think of just a bunch of Greeks and Romans running around here. Uh, In the very beginning, you would mainly think of a bunch of Hebrews running around. But after that, it becomes diverse very quickly. And he talks about this, this, uh, these Christian mentors who fed into his life. And he quote, he says this, he says, quote, I, uh, he talks about hearing these things, quote, animated discourses, which I was privileged to hear, am of blessed and truly remarkable men. End quote. So a lot of this can a lot of this can relate to that. You you if you're surrounding yourself by good men, and it may be different inputs. Some of you have may have, have a mentor, you know, who's, who's some super old white guy, you know, like and, and in a secular world like Mike Tyson with his with his trainer, you know. Yeah, and, yeah. Here we are. We don't know. Some of my most powerful mentors in my life were black men. Yeah. Shout out to Curtis Hairston. I mean, I can't tell you how much he taught. And to a lesser degree, uh, one of his his partners, Rashad. And and that's not the only mentors, but those are definitely very important mentors in my formative early college, late high school years. And listen mm-hmm. to this, what he says when he talks about these remarkable men. This is Clement of Alexandria. Mm-hmm. Of these, the one in Greece and Ionic, the other in Megan, Gratia, the first of these from Coel, Syria, the second from Egypt, and others in the east. The one was born in the land of Assyria. And the other, a Hebrew in Palestine. So he's talking about where his mentors came from. That's all over there. Yeah. yeah, So Europe, Africa, it's amazing. So this is modern day Greece, southern Italy, Syria, of course, Lebanon, uh, uh, parts of Israel, Assyria. You see this? This is an amazing thing. So uh, he eventually left Alexandria and even went to Jerusalem, Israel until his death in 215. And his life is illustrative of the diversity of early Christianity. And again, I point out he's known as Clement of Alexandria. He's associated with an African city. Now we come mm-hmm. to Tertullian, may have been the son of a Roman soldier, born around 155, 160, and it seems like he had a long life it's understood traditionally that he probably practiced law or some form in some way he was associated with the law in rome and part of his biographical details we actually know from another man associated with africa jerome jerome uh's ministry is is african and later on he's recounting about tertullian now tertullian had left paganism converted to christianity and at one point it seems was a presbyter in carthage that's modern day Tunis, Tunis, which is which is now Tunisia in northern Africa. Uh, he was the first Christian author whose work we have, who where he wrote a treatise on the Trinity. 
his his discussion tertullian a man associated with africa uh he's 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 an african through and through in every way that we know of and again i'm not claiming to know exactly how these people look that's a separate discussion but association right. with african is africa is undeniable and he laid the groundwork for important subsequent discussions of the trinity now in my book um or in my blog at the shield squad.com i i quote some sections where he talks about the trinity uh, from a book of his called against praxis and there you see the depth of his thought and in fact he wrote in latin and he's the first person that we have record of around 212 ad to use the word trinitas to speak of god mm, mm, trinitas mm. and that's where the word trinity came from right. he's the first person that we have evidence of to speak of the trinity as persons he's yeah. the first one to speak of of their unity as substance so a lot of the tech uh, terminology that we have regarding right, the trinity right. Uh, comes from Tertullian, which is mm -hmm. a beautiful, amazing thing when you think about it. And again, Tertullian, African. Now, I'm not going to get too much deeper into um, his Trinitarianism because it's formative and it's important. But again, this is an African, died around 220, 240 AD. This is still the early church. Anything before, sometimes they'll say 500 will still be sort of in the early area, and especially uh, before Nicaea, which he was as well. And then we come yeah. to origin of Alexandria, yeah. sometimes called mm -hmm. the Iron Man, born around 185, 186, died around 251. Now, he was born in Alexandria. Now, interestingly enough, he had a Christian father, and his Christian father's name meant Bold Lion. His father was imprisoned and executed, so his father mm -hmm. was martyred when the North yeah. African church was persecuted under Septimius Severus. Then they even seize the family's property. So this is origins background. Mm -hmm. This is this is this is not going to be like life easy. And so he was very against pagan thought, as you can imagine. Now, although you can see elements of Platonism in his thought, but he had a very cautious attitude towards Greek philosophy. So now you see young Origin, who's a young Christian uh, uh, instructor, and according to uh, our understanding, sold all of his books in order to study. Only the scripture. He fasted frequently, hmm. and uh, some of his students were martyred. It seems he even wanted to be a martyr himself. He was attacked and hunted by mobs at various times throughout his career, had to flee from house to house, but he was always brave and courageous, and that's why sometimes he had this nickname, Origin Admantius, which basically means he could not be broken, the Iron Man. Hmm. He even hmm. learned Hebrew from Jewish rabbis. A lot of people in the early church did not want to associate with the Jewish folks at that point. There was kind of a separation, but he went to the Jewish rabbis to learn Hebrew, and because of that, did some amazing work. Now, eventually, Origen was tortured under Decius. He was stretched in stocks. He was burned with torture mm -hmm. instruments, mm -hmm. and they let him out, but he died soon after because of his injuries. He died entirely at 70 years old. Yeah. And so you look at that, and this is not a man who is a sellout because sometimes you'll see people say, oh, that's just – they're just like Rome, tools of the Roman government. No, the Roman government uh, at various points was against them, and yeah. very significant contribution to – Many things, but also in the realm of Trinitarianism. There's other people I could mention briefly, a man named Dionysus of Alexandria, 230 to 265 or so briefly, um, and you can see more of this on the blog that's going to come out in a little bit here. Now let's talk about Nicaea itself. Nicaea yeah. happens the first ecumenical church council. People come from all over. Um, it's a very important thing. It's the first kind of breath of fresh air where churches can get together after uh, the persecution it sort of subsided because constantine's in charge now so there was kind of a law and the action regarding persecution and after nicaea in which it was 
uh, agreed on almost unanimously that Jesus is fully God. We're not going to mm. put him at some lesser substance. He's not a created right. being like the Arians say, which Jehovah's Witnesses still say today. Yeah, and, and, and then there's a letter sent out from the Council of Nicaea to Alexandria in Egypt. And here's a portion from the letter that came out from Nicaea. To the holy, by the grace of God and great church of the Alexandrians, and to our beloved brethren throughout Egypt – Libya and Pentapolis, the bishops assembled at Nicaea, constituting the great and holy synod, saying greeting in the Lord. So the council is writing a letter to these churches, and you can see the importance of northern Africa here because of that. In fact, the whole Nicaean council in a lot of ways was an African controversy or writ large. You had Arius, and he was primarily debating Alexander of Alexandria. Mm -hmm, obviously mm -hmm. again they're in africa right so this is bishop alexander and you can read more about him uh in different places this is actually one quote i'm going to read from ecclesiastical history of socrates scholasticus these are the things which especially affect egypt and the most holy church of the alexandrians if any other canon or ordinance has been established our lord and most honored fellow minister and brother alexander being present with us will on his return to you enter into more minute details and as much as he has been a participant in whatever is transacted and has had the principal direction of it. So here, an African mm, bishop sure, is, sure, yeah. is being able to instruct further because not only has he been involved, but he has principal direction of it. So this is interesting because sometimes you actually get people out there who literally say that the Trinity is a white or European concept. I've been yep, on Sonnetta's yep. program, and they'll say Africans have never thought about God in that kind of way. That's a white thing. That's a European thing. Well, uh, this gives this shows that that's a lie, and I wrote yeah. a whole chapter on it in a book I contributed called "Our God Is Triune." It's a yellow mm -hmm. cover. Find it. I only have one chapter, but the chapter is all about the the fact that the Trinity is not some Euro thing invented by yeah, white yeah. people who think abstractly over and against other peoples. Which sometimes you do hear this kind of claim: the Trinity's biblical people. It's not Euro. It's not white. Now it's for Euro and white folks, and some of them have contributed as well. But that's not the origin of it. It's yeah, only God revealing Himself to us. In fact, yeah. you know, you go to the Ethiopian Orthodox Church website. There's a strong belief in the Trinity there, and that's an interesting branch of Christianity to study. Sometimes they mm. get romanticized. They are not perfect. Sometimes when we don't know about something and it's foreign or exotic, like, man, look what they do. They're not perfect, but, but what church is, and they do sign yeah. off on the Trinity, and they've been doing so for a long time. Uh, the Ethiopian church you know, recognized this way back when. And so you look and you see early African Christians, they maintained close relationships with Egyptian and Syrian Christianity, and they were part of the Eastern church uh, uh, as far as a whole thing. And then after Nicaea happened, this is where a famous man came along named Athanasius. So yeah. he was the successor there of Alexander at Alexandria. So this is another African bishop again, and he was the primary defender of orthodoxy that had been firmly cemented at Nicaea, not invented, mm -hmm. but essentially mm -hmm. said, yes, it's codified yeah, yeah. as far as our Christology goes. Uh, it doesn't seem like Athanasius himself had much role at Nicaea. Sometimes people paint that picture. It seems like primarily it was Alexander, the guy before him. But he was the primary defender. In fact, there was even a Latin phrase that was Athanasius against the world. So he's living 295 to 373, and he is defending a truthful understanding of who God is. And he even got exiled multiple times because even when I see it happen, it wasn't done after that. Wow. 
a number of times you had pro-Aryan. This is unorthodox mm-hmm. view mm-hmm. of Jesus, like to Jehovah's right. Witnesses dove. Pro-Aryan right. emperors and other people rise to power, and whenever they do that, Athanasius was considered not cool. So he got exiled yeah. a number of times, uh, almost died a number of times. One time had a hideout in the deserts of Egypt, and yeah. what happened is he didn't waste his time. He wrote a book on the Egyptian monks, like Anthony, and that's how they came to be known. Because the monks and these, when I say monks, it's kind of they're almost like proto monks. They're more like aesthetics. They're kind of living out in the desert in caves and poles by themselves, trying to get mm-hmm. away from society because they viewed it as corrupt and stuff like that. He brought these what are called desert fathers to life. So this is mm-hmm. a man in the African context uh, talking about African Christianity, promoting a universal global reality, though across all the. Churches. Now, I do want to dispel one myth just to, to, to help you out here. It is commonly reported – you will hear people frequently say he was nicknamed the Black Dwarf. We need to to not repeat that, not because I'm not saying he wasn't black. Now, I don't know his color. He, he may have been short, too. I do not know. The issue is, though, the source of that is primarily from a book that I read in seminary by Justo Gonzalez, the church the church history yeah. book. Yeah, and I read he that. He does not cite his source, and he's right. asked about a source later on. Now, he's a good scholar, but even good scholars make mistakes. And he had it later on published something called – it's called The Story of Christianity. Yeah, brother. Uh, he later had it published what's called an errata. I, I forget how you pronounce it. It's Latin, errata, errata. And it's where you say there was a previous error here, and he had to do so in regards to the claim that Athanasius was called the Black Dwarf. Now, some people don't like that. They're like, well, I heard he was a Black Dwarf, and don't take that away from us. But look, we only want to say what's true. If we don't have any primary source evidence, meaning contemporaneous or roughly after that he was called that until way later, then we can't say he was really called that because there's there's not evidence for that. Now, again, that's not speaking to his height or his color. I'm just saying we do not have any primary source evidence. It seems like it was essentially an accidental accidental attribution that he was called mm. the Black Dwarf. Nonetheless, you see I am say, showing us how African he really is. And just a great fighter for truth. Just a great defender of the faith was, was Athanasius. Now yeah, let's go to Augustine. Yeah. 354 yeah. to 430, he was around when the, the barbarians were basically closing in on, on the Roman Empire, and so that's part of the reason he wrote a famous work called City of God. He was mm-hmm. born in North Africa yep. in a yep. town called Tagalog. Gaste, uh, modern, I think it's called Thagaste. And this is a Numidian village in modern day Algeria. And he wrote a book called On the Trinity, which is a great book in which he avoids the error of tritheism and modalism as well. These are uh, Chris, these are errors in relationship to God's nature and understanding. And just a very powerful, powerful bishop. And he again born in Africa, associated with Africa. This is important. We're talking Algeria. Now, that should be enough, but let me just throw in one here. I'm going to throw in a heretic. It's Sibelius, the Libyan. He flourished around 215 AD. And I'll just bring this up, not because he was Orthodox. He wasn't, just to show that he's from the African continent. He promoted something called Sibelianism, which is a Mm non-Trinitarian view. It's what the oneness Mm -hmm. Pentecostals still promote today, basically. Sometimes referred to as modalistic monarchianism. And I know I'm throwing a lot of terms out here and all that, but just to to show you that that even some of the people that the early church was locking horns with, 
with. Also, again, we're from the African continent. Now, I'm focusing on this, so I don't want someone to get the idea and think, well, no one else was doing nothing. No, Christianity was global and diverse from a very early stage, ladies and wow. gentlemen. And so so I'm not saying that that's not the case. For example, Justin Martyr, he was he was from the area that we now understand to be Samaria, I believe. You know, mm -hmm. There's other examples. Uh, Irenaeus of Lyon, that's southern France. Ignatius mm -hmm. of Antioch, that's Syria. So we're not doing everything, so I don't want you to get the wrong idea, but right. we also want to focus on this so you have a better, pure, holistic idea. Now, just for time's sake, we're going to have to kind of skip past this early period we've been focused on and jump basically right into the 18th century. Now, before I do yeah. that, do you have any – because because we only really have so much we can cover, and I just want to yeah, yeah, uh, cover I, I some things. No. No, I'm I'm totally tracking with you. I've 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 read some of those things you've mentioned, and your own point. Let's jump. Let's jump together. Yeah, well, let me show a few books too. These are kind of scholarly books, so they're not like just pick up and you know. This one's called Christianizing Egypt. It's published mm -hmm. by Princeton Syncretism. In local mm -hmm. worlds and lake antiquity just just to more learn more about it. Again, these are from a secular perspective, David Frankfurter, mm -hmm. but nonetheless, some good stuff in here. Christianity mm -hmm. in Roman Africa. Uh, a good book as well. I mean, you know, there's a lot here. I, I, I um, have went through some of these. I haven't even fully been able to read some of the books I own yet, right. but uh, that doesn't mean I haven't read any of it. And there's still some good resources there. Let me show her just a few others here. This is uh, this one's by Rutledge on Rutledge, David uh, <clears throat> Will Height. Ancient African Christianity and Introduction to a Unique Context and Tradition. So that's more about you know kind of older stuff. And then when you come more into a larger picture here's a couple good ones the history mm -hmm. of christianity in africa so it's going to go over some stuff i'm gonna have to, to to skip antiquity present but they've got the stuff in between there and this one's really good the blessings of africa uh mm -hmm. keith burton this is a good one uh, that i recommend as well and i have went through that one the bible in african christianity now let's go here uh, we're going to look at six um black christians from the 18th century and you know it'd be great to have pictures and all that but again, I am going to promote it because I'm putting out resources related to this interview for the audience's sake. This uh, was just published uh, today at the time of this interview, Six Inspiring Black Christians from the 18th Century. And I, I show a few people that despite the adversity at that time, overcame great hardship, and I even include some little paintings of them to give you a sense of what they may have looked like. The first is Anton Wilhelm Amo. 1700 to 1759, a philosopher and academic. He was born in Ghana into the Nazima tribe. He mm -hmm. was taken by the Dutch West India Company uh, to Amsterdam as a present for uh, someone who was royalty there. Later on, was adopted and baptized as a Christian and was even brought up, and it seems to probably be a, a pastor, but he became more of an academic philosopher. We'll see that in a second. Along the way, he learned to speak Dutch, Hebrew, Greek, Latin, French, and German. Now, remember, this is someone who was essentially kidnapped from their, their place of birth and, and taken to a foreign land. You know, mm -hmm. He was the first African to study uh, at a Christian university in Europe and the first African to practice philosophy in Europe since the Roman era. His doctoral doc, uh, dissertation uh, at the University of Wittenberg is called On the Impact passivity of the human mind, and it's a critique of Roman Catholic philosopher Descartes, who's famous for his dictum, mm. I think, therefore, therefore I, am. I am. The essence yeah. of his thesis was the concept of divine impassibility found in the Latin Christian theological tradition. Now, he finished his studies, and he learned more about scripture, and he used it to argue powerfully against slavery. 
He also said it's against the principles of the Enlightenment. So now it's 1736. He's got the title doctor, becomes a lecturer at Halle, uh, Halle University, where he was once a student, teaching several subjects, natural law. And now he did experience some isolation, some racism, returned back to Ghana in 1747, and we don't know once he left Germany. We don't know much about him. But if you go to Halle University in Germany today, there's a bronze statue that was erected in 1965, and you can see it there. And since 94, they have uh, done a yearly prize in honor for, uh, in his honor, in Anton's honor for academic, uh, academic achievement. So his legacy lives on here. Now mm. we're going to go to Phyllis Wheatley. The focus here is people in the 18th century she was the yeah. first major black poet in american history 1753 to 1784 first published english speaking black author first major black poet in u.s history one of the first female black or white poets in u.s and stuff she did was a catalyst uh to really spark a lot of anti-slavery sentiment she was born in gambia which is west africa kidnapped at seven enslaved brought to the united states well what became united states in 1761 uh learned to read and write at the home of a prominent boston taylor 1765 she's only 11 she wrote her earliest surviving poem to a native american missionary and poet mm. named samuel ockham in britain and Later on, she corresponded with the same man, and here's an excerpt from one of the letters. She desired to, quote, convince them of the strange absurdity of their conduct whose words and actions are so diametrically opposite, yeah. end quote. And now what she talking about there? Obviously, people professing Christianity and then yeah. being slaves, okay, yeah. that kind of thing. And so she points out contradictions here, publishes a poem in the Newport Mercury in 1767 at only 14, became very famous, especially in England because of her 1773 poems on various subjects, religious and moral, and then was granted her freedom that year. Um, in Boston, they wouldn't publish her, so she had to go over to London, and a Christian philanthropist, Selena Hastings, the Countess of Huntington, helped distribute her poetry. She had been baptized at 18, and she prayed for temptation against pride because she had success, and she recognized that her God-given gifts were, quote, for his glory and the good of mankind. And in fact, yeah. she made a poem when George Whitfield died, and she appreciated his work. He was an Anglican preacher, and she said this, mm. take him, ye Africans, he longs for you. This is in relationship to Jesus in the in the poem, though, to Whitfield. Impartial Savior is his title due. Wash in the fountain of redeeming blood. You shall be sons and kings and priests to God. So that was her message to sons and daughters of Africa at that time. Powerful message indeed. Now we go yeah. to Jacobus, Elisa, Johannes, Capitan, 17. 17 to 1747, he was a missionary, a minister, a translator. He was forcibly enslaved at eight years old, eventually freed, became one of the few Africans educated in Europe in the 18th century. The first African ordained by the Dutch Reformed Church, well known mm -hmm. in his lifetime as the black minister, did a tour of the Netherlands. And in a 1742 lecture, uh, which was based upon his, his dissertation, which was presented in Latin, argued that slavery, quote, 
Now this is this is this is a, a bad thing, and, and I'm just trying to give this full um, full right, right. picture of the man. At that time, he said slavery quote was not in conflict with Christian liberty, and so because of that, some modern scholars view him as a defender of slavery at that time, and one even calls him a mouthpiece for Western colonialism. But you gotta mm. understand there was a lot going on, and, and part of it had to do with the relationship of slaves and the ability to be baptized. It gets kind of complicated and complex, and the the question is, is that something he always thought? Uh, and so I'm just putting that out there. Nonetheless, major achievements. Uh, nonetheless, he was sent to Holland and and then uh, went to the west coast of Africa for five years and was a missionary. And you can see in his letters uh, a complex, complicated man living in a complex and complicated era because, see, what happens is he was fighting against forces that wouldn't permit African slaves to be baptized. Mm, yeah, and the reason yeah. why they wouldn't do that is because then they would think, well, then they have to be freed. So he had this conflict where it's like, well, because of the situation, if 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 we're if we're not going to let – so it was a lot going on here. It's very right. complicated. So he was essentially fighting to keep alive the option of Christian baptism for enslaved people, right. and his focus, it seems, was on spiritual freedom primarily because yeah. he did argue. He did argue in places, so don't get the wrong idea, that true Christian love barred the mistreatment of slaves. So don't get the wrong idea. So um, he he went back to Ghana, and he was a minister and missionary there, and the white slave traders did not like him. Why? Probably because he was black, and also he called out their sin. And so mm. it became very difficult for him to be accepted by uh, the white slave traders because they're pre he's preaching against certain things that they were doing. But then a lot of the Africans didn't really relate to him. They kind of viewed him, viewed him as too Dutch, and so his missionary efforts were difficult. I mean just imagine being alive at this time dealing with this. He died at 30. Young wow. death after barely five years of missionary work. But think about what he's already accomplished in his life. I mean, my yeah. goodness. I mean, this is it's quite amazing when you would put it all together here when you look at uh Capitan's life. And even during his ministry, he did translate the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer into a language I uh, may pronounce this wrong, Mefantse, M-F-A-N-T-S-E. And this is the language being spoke around what's called the Gold Coast in 1744. These are some of the examples of the first written words in Ghana. And so his work as an educator helped spread literacy in Ghana because – uh, he promoted um, learning the alphabet to, to learn literacy. So this is an amazing thing. And the king of the Asantes, Opuku Wari I, even asked for Capitan to teach his own children. Capitan is the first African to have written a treatise on slavery, The Agony of Asar. Now we go to Equiano. Equiano, he was actually portrayed in a movie, if you've seen it, called Amazing Grace about the man who wrote – well, not just about him, but about all the things going on in the abolitionist movement there in Britain, part about John Newton, the man who wrote Amazing Grace. And uh, man, he was mentoring in some ways William Wilberforce to get slavery mm -hmm. outlawed. Mm -hmm. And abolished there. Equiano makes a cameo in it because he was a very important abolitionist and writer. 1745 to 1797. 
He was born in southern Nigeria, kidnapped about 11 years old. The Raiders split him up from his sister, transported to the Caribbean, and then sold to a Huguenot, which is like a French Calvinist and a Royal Naval officer. Then aboard one of his ships, he met Daniel Queen, who really mentored him. He helped educate Equiano, introduced him to the Bible, taught him some professional skills. He was sold two more times, but managed Equiano to purchase his own freedom in 1766. So now he's a free man in London, becomes part of something called the Sons of Africa. This is an abolitionist group of Africans living in Britain. Quite amazing. you got to be really brave to do this. And during this time, he exposed the murder of 130 slaves on a British ship who had been thrown overboard by the captain. In 1789, he wrote his autobiography, The Interesting Narrative of the Life of Ola Adu Equiano. And this is what he wrote. Oh, ye nominal Christians. Might not an Akin ask you, learn you this from your God? Who Mm. says unto you, do unto all men as you would men should do unto you? He's saying, where did you guys that are Christian in name only learn this stuff? It can't be from your God who gives you the gold rule. Where did you get it from? Africans have a right to ask you that. And so he would appeal to Matthew 7, 12 numerous times when conversing with pro-slavers. His book was very successful, reprinted several times, and he really helped raise awareness to the cruelty of slavery and its related institutions. That's Equiano's Mm -hmm. legacy, and you can still read his works today. Now we come to one of America's first black preachers, 1755 to 17. 1991, John Morant, John Morant, M-A-R-R-A-N-T. He's a wilderness missionary, a chaplain, a church planner, an author. He was a French horn player at a young age, and he would go to balls and parties in Charleston, South Carolina. He was actually born free, so not everyone is a slave, but we're talking about people of African descent who who are not as always well-known. You know, right, We hear right. about Malcolm X, but we don't hear enough about sometimes about the Christians who overcame. And yeah. here he is in 1755, converted drastically, radically to Christianity in 1768. He was 13 when he heard a sermon by George Whitfield. His family mm-hmm. – didn't like this. They thought he was mentally ill. So sometimes you hear people, oh, mm. they're beaten into them. Not everyone who was Africa, African descent living in America was about that Christianity, and they had various reasons. And yeah. some slave masters didn't want their Christians or slaves to become Christians because, one, they didn't want to baptize them because then it's like, wait, are you a brother? Yeah. Another yeah. is then there would be the reading question in relationship to the Bible, and then they would have their own church services. Slave masters didn't like that. It's the narrative you get of all beaten is not always true. And even yeah. that slave Bible, which is horrible enough, had limited distribution. It wasn't primarily in America. It's primarily in some of the islands. Now, I'm not saying those things are okay or minimizing. I'm just but, saying sometimes we're sold a false bill of goods when people of African descent come against Christianity on these false basis. Attack the truth value of it, not based upon some false history. Now, I'm not denying there's some truth to the fact of this, and this is what we're reading about You know, in relationship to people misusing and abusing the Bible. Obviously, right. that happened, and uh, way more so than what it should have been okay. But I just point out here, I just point out here, uh, not that any except <laughs> I'm speaking fast, so I'm just want to make the, sure I get this out. Not that any of it would be okay, but I'm just saying it happened uh, frequently, misuse of the Bible is my point by what I was saying there. So his family thought he was crazy, basically, coming back to John Morant. Excuse my own little rant there. They thought he was crazy, so he has these debates with his family. He wanders out into the forest. He's kind of like a wandering a wandering, you know, religious exile, and mm. he just trusts God. A Cherokee hunter finds him, but see, these Cherokees have certain traditions, 
and they don't want to, but because of their traditions, because of the way that he was found, it's kind of a long, complicated story. They believe that they had to sentence him to death, essentially as sort of someone encouraging and coming into their territory uninvited, that type of thing, right? Mm-hmm. So this execution is scheduled, but it gets canceled because, according to Morant's, Morant's testimony, the tribe hears him pray in their native tongue. So mm. he becomes a missionary to the Cherokees, and this is a fact. He lived with them for two years, and then he was able to branch out and minister to other tribes and areas. So think about this. This wow. is a black man at this time in America who becomes a missionary to Native Americans, the Creek, yeah. the Catawba, the Husaw. Now, he was a loyalist. And if you were black during that time, you might be a loyalist because the British were a little bit better in relationship to slaves than the Americans were. Now, none are good, but by and large, from the information we have, by and large, the Brits were a little bit better, and they did abolish slavery first, for example. So he was a loyalist, siding with the Brits during the American Revolution. After the war, he moves to England and becomes associated with Calvinistic Methodism. Then in 1785, he goes to Nova Scotia. Founds a church there in a place called Birchtown, then goes back to Boston, or goes to Boston, then goes back to England in 1790. He's got three published works, including a sermon and a journal. His testimony was a famous famous pamphlet, went through 17 editions. And so a lot of historians describe him as America's first black preacher. Now mm-hmm. we come to a man who has a very challenging name that uh, I think is in his native tongue to pronounce Kugowano, I believe is the last name. Adaba is the middle name, and maybe Kubna. It's difficult, but he would also go by John Stewart. He lived from 1757 to 1791, and he was the first African that we have record to demand total abolition. Kidnapped in 1770. By the way, that's a biblical violation deserving the death penalty in the Bible. At age 13, brought to the West Indies, enslaved there in Granada, brought to England, learned to read, gained his freedom after something called the Somerset case of 1772. And then in 1773, so this is after he's he's uh, free now, baptized, took on the name John Stewart, and then he worked with Equiano and the Sons of Africa on various anti-slavery campaigns. And so he made connections. This, this freed African made connections to the British elite and became a leader in London's African community. And notice they didn't, just didn't sit back. They said, let's abolish this thing. So, you know, they could have said, hey, I'm good. What forget everyone else? He would even also work with Af- uh, William Green, who was an Afro Briton, who was a biblical scholar, and also another man who was a biblical scholar and Christian abolitionist, Granville Sharp. And they did this to help free mm-hmm. a kidnapped man named Henry Demane, who was being forced into slavery. So he affected real people's lives here. He published in 1787 a book, Kuko Anna did, called Thoughts and Sentiments on the Evil and Wicked traffic of the slavery and commerce of the human species became so popular even translated into french and in it there's a great quote and he that stilleth a man and selleth him or if he be found in his hand he shall be surely put to death well um that's from the bible and I mentioned yeah. that early, earlier, earlier, yeah. that, that, that's, that's, that's up. And so he engaged in work in natural rights philosophy. He exposed how the slave trade violated property prince, uh, proper principles of property ownership, reason, and Christianity. And his anti-slavery political treatise was the first to be published in English and made him the first identified, an identified African critic of the transatlantic slave trade. And, and by the way, these are my notes I'm, I'm looking at. Again, uh, this mm-hmm. article is going to be, uh, it was, was published yesterday, so you can see what I'm looking at if I'm going too right. fast here. In 1791, he released a revised edition addressed to the Sons of Africa, and he advocated for the establishment of an education system for Africans and a colony in Sierra Leone for freed mm-hmm. slaves. 
And I believe that's where Freetown came from, Freetown, Sierra Leone. Now we're going to look at four more Christians, and then I got to get out of here, but I love you. These folks from the 19th century. Mary Prince, 1788 to 1833, the first woman to petition parliament for freedom. She was born in Bermuda to an enslaved family. Difficult life. She described it, quote, as, listen to this, going from one butcher to another. Mm. So now she's in in Antigua, joins the Moravian church, attending classes taught by Moravian missionaries, learned how to read there. Notice that's a a common form of empowerment and often tied to Christianity. Later baptized in the Church of England, taken to London in 1828, and then she sought refuge with something called the Anti-Slavery Society. And here's what she says, quote, I took courage and resolved that I would not be longer thus treated but would go and trust to providence. So trust in God and his work yeah. and hand in our life. And then in 1829, she directly petitioned parliament for her freedom, the first woman to do so. Now, these attempts did fall short, but then there was a bill introduced to free all slaves from the West Indies in England uh, whose owners had freely brought them there, and um, she had an impact. She was employed as a domestic servant for abolitionist Thomas Pringle. And then her memoirs are transcribed by Susanna Moody, who was a Methodist member of the anti-slavery movement in London. 1831, Pringle edited and financed Prince's autobiography called The History of Mary Prince. You can read all these books today. They still exist, and there's no copyright on them. It proved Mm -hmm. to be popular, obviously, but obviously controversial. Three editions later that year, and then there's a whole thing with litigation in here, and it becomes kind of complicated there. But she was declared in 2012 to be the, a national hero of Bermuda, and mm. in 2018, they even did a Google Doodle of her. You know when you log on Google and have those little drawings sometimes depending on a certain day like St. Patrick's right. Day, it'll be in green. Right, right. She got a, a Google Doodle, and the entry underneath it reads, her book played a decisive role in turning British public opinion against the centuries-old institution of human enslavement. Now we come to Harriet Ann Jacobs, 1813 to 1897, and she challenged the hypocrisy of Christian slave owners. In her 1861 autobiography, In the Life of a Slave Girl, republished in 1862 as The Deeper Wrong, she focused in mm. this narrative mm. on the sexual abuse suffered yeah. by female slaves, and she had experienced this personally. And she said this, quote, There is a great difference between Christianity and religion at the South. No matter if it be the price of blood, he is called religious. So it's saying like you can be killing people in the South and all you're still religious according to this version of Christianity. And she uh, recollects how her first mistress taught her – now that's a technical term. means the woman of the house. It doesn't mean like a side chick. Taught her the precepts of God's word, quote, and that Christians should, quote, love thy neighbor as thyself. But then she concluded – I suppose she did not recognize me as her neighbor. And yeah. So yeah. I'm learning this, and it's like, well, aren't I your neighbor? So she's seeing the disconnect. And that's a common thing that uh, humans have done. Well, love, but not that neighbor. That's not, not that neighbor. They're not, not, that, they're not right. a neighbor. A, they're not really a neighbor. Right. And that's why yeah, I remember yeah. the man back in the day, I think it was a lawyer or whoever, said to Jesus, yeah. Well, uh, love your neighbor yourself. Who's my neighbor? Then he yeah. tells the Good Samaritan. He says, Well, who's the neighbor in that story? That's exactly where it comes from. She wrote wow. that plantation odors, quote, satisfy their consciences with the doctrine that God created the Africans to be slaves. What a libel upon the heavenly father who made of one blood all nations of men, end quote. That's an allusion to Acts 17, 26. Notice how mm. powerful refutations against slavery are in the scripture and to 
get it the other way to try to make the Bible defend, especially antebellum slavery. You have to twist God's word. So yes, she was a devout Christian, but she um, was able to escape finally, and she prayed with her grandmother before she did so. And you can see these letters she has, the Harriet Jacobs family papers, and you can see her faith in Christ in there. And one of the last things that we know that she did was traveling to England in 45, 58, 67. Why? To raise funds for an orphanage that also cared for former slaves in Savannah, Georgia. Now, if you look at her mm. tombstone, this again, we're talking about Harriet Jacobs. It says this from Romans 12, patient in tribulation, fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. That's on our tombstone. Yeah. Thomas Lewis Johnson, uh, eighteen thirty-six to nineteen twenty. Okay, just a minute. Okay, let me jump in for a minute. Uh, I, I'm I'm glad that you're introducing some women into uh -huh. the problem because so many times in our in our history, especially church history and the African present, you very seldom hear hear about the ladies. Right. So what you what you've just articulated is just so powerful of how there are some sisters who stood up for the cause of Christ in the midst. Of great contrition and tribulations and suffering, uh, that's just an, an awesome because I'm sure many of the viewers they've never heard that before, never even never even considered that, that that one would have that type of audacity and yet that type of courage and commitment to Jesus Christ to take a stand like that. So I applaud you, brother. Thank you for yeah. For it's important, that. and hopefully people can see. You know, these folks are not being you know pushed, forced. Uh, you know, these folks are Christians basically. Despite what's around yeah. them, really not yeah. really because yeah. of what's around them, right? You know, right. Because you, you look at what they were encountering, and you're like, "Jeez, would I, would I be a Christian in this kind of circumstance?" Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. think about it. We've all, a lot of us, have had bad things happen in our life, but how many things like this? So yeah, now we come yeah. to a Baptist missionary and uh, probably the first black student of Spurgeon's College, born in Virginia to an enslaved mother and a free father. And his master refused uh, – this is his mother's master – refused to sell her and her son to, to their father. And so he was sent away to work uh, at a very young age, so split up the family. And as he grew, his interest in Christianity grew, though. He recalled this, quote, I used to think how nice it must be in heaven, no slaves, all free. And God would think as much of the black people as he did of the white End quote. Mm. Isn't that a great quote? He understands that heaven is where things are made right, how it's supposed to yeah. be. And yeah. then he understood that God had the right view, not the view of the white slave masters, regardless of that they are pushing some form of Christianity or not. That's a beautiful yeah. thing that shows how the gospel can shine through the mud. Now, he yeah. had an encounter with the street pe preacher. So, you know, people talk about street preaching. Well, this guy had a street encounter mm -hmm. with an evangelist back in the day. And I don't know exactly if the counter is street preaching or whatever, but it was a street evangelist conversation based upon the history I read. And this man communicated, quote, the simple gospel, end quote, to him. That night he prays, quote, oh, Lord, have mercy upon me, a all deserving sinner for Jesus' sake. Yeah. I like Thomas Lewis Johnson's prayer there. And he could say, well, what's happened to me? I should, but he recognizes he's still a sinner. He's free from slavery mm -hmm. at the Civil War, moves to New York, then Chicago, ordained as a Baptist minister in 1869, goes to Denver, a church there, moves to the UK, studied at Spurgeon's College. That's Charles Spurgeon, one of my heroes of the faith, big wow. burly guy with the beard, smoked cigars, and was so anti-slavery that he was barred from coming to the South, received death threats, and was not allowed to preach mm -hmm. in churches there. And so I don't even know if he ever was able to come to America as a as a minister in London because of the death threats. And you can read about this online. This is a public wow. record. record. And so uh, Johnson uh, meets Spurgeon, 
And uh, when Johnson meets him, he sings Steal Away Home, I guess, is which is an old song. And there's a 2018 book written by that same title, Steal Away Home, and it details the uni unique relationship between Johnson and Spurgeon. He worked with the Anti-Slavery Society seven, and, and then in 1878 travels to Sierra Leone, Liberia, and Cameroon as a Baptist missionary. Beautiful, right? And here's what wow. he would say. This is a quote from Johnson. One day I must go to Africa, the land of my fathers, to preach the gospel to my long benighted people, end quote. So you know, he's taking what Satan meant for evil and wickedness, Jesus yeah, 20, like with Joseph, yeah. and he uses it for good. Wow. And that's a beautiful thing. He returns in 1882. What's he do? He returns to raise support for missionaries in the Congo and publishes a book this year called Africa for Christ, 28 Years a Slave. Evangelistically minded autobiography went through seven editions during his lifetime, became well-known in Britain, even shared the stage at one point with Edward VII, that's the Prince of Wales, during an anti-slavery celebration in 1884. Fruitful ministry both in Africa and in Britain and died in 1921 at the age of 85. That's Thomas Lewis Johnson. Last woman we're going to come to, a remarkable evangelist, Amanda Smith, 1837 to 1915. Mm -hmm. And again, this blog will come out next week, so you'll be able to see these folks I'm talking about uh -huh. in the second half of here. These uh, uh, 19th century folks. She was born a slave in Maryland, eldest of 13 children, freed when she became a teenager, married at 17, widowed at 26, had a momentous conversion at a Baptist revival meeting in 1856, later ordained as a deacon in the historic AME church, Mother Bethel. After her second husband died in 1869, she began speaking and singing at meetings in Jersey and all over the United States. She had a fear of the sea, but still traveled all the way to England to minister in 1878. She experienced prejudice from other travelers while on that journey, but the captain asked her to conduct services as they crossed the Atlantic, and she eventually went over her fellow passengers. She was kind of a, mm. a seems like a charming lady who was able to sometimes even went over racist, basically, from what I've read yeah. about her life. Uh, seemed to be able to take some of the hardship with a not I don't say a grain of salt, but as any as well as any person could and still maintain an optimistic attitude and spirit, Amanda Smith, because uh, she viewed it as her job to, to also uh, serve a witness to white folks you know she, yeah. she's you know everyone needs jesus type of thing <laughs> everyone needs yeah. <laughs> yeah she was received well in britain went on to minister throughout england and scotland for the next three years traveled to liberia and even india where she spent eight years as a methodist mis missionary 1893 published a book called the story of the lord's dealings with mrs amanda smith the colored evangelist then mm. her final year years she she was taking money from the sales of her autobiography so from her own book to do what open up an or, or an orphanage in uh south of chicago in illinois and then in the 1926 work of uh, the author who wrote it called her quote one of the most remarkable preachers of any race and of any age now there's obviously a lot more people wow, wow. but i wanted to drop some people that i doubt a lot of us have heard of but when you search around you can find maybe not as much information as you want to about these folks wow, wow, wow. these are folks who awesome contributions and it shows how when we celebrate church history we can celebrate people from all over the world not just yeah. one place or just speak one yeah. language and this is what we're going to see when we get to heaven revelation every nation tribe and tongue good and stuff hey man hey man okay I, you know i really like the fact that that they were able to discern that the difference between the christianity mm -hmm. that right. they were that they were culturally around Versus what the Bible says, and I, yeah. I love how they'll bring out that distinction because I've always said that's not rooted in Christianity. That's not rooted in biblical Christianity. That's right. rooted in something else, you know, consumerism, mm -hmm. commercial commercialism, but it's not rooted in Scripture or in Jesus Christ. 
So I right. thought that they were even to discern that that this is not uh, Christianity. It's something, but it's not Christianity. <laughs> yeah. That's right. So I, I appreciate you sharing that. Okay, man, you've done a tremendous job in the kitchen table. You've learned a lot. You've heard some names that you did not know before. But one thing he said is so true, and that all of them said as well, everybody needs a God. Everybody needs Jesus. Amen. And God has sovereignly used so many faces, so many places to continue this great message of, of liberation about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so, vocab, we thank you. Kitchen table, tell your family, tell your friends. We're not done yet. We still got to do part four. We'll be back here next week together right here at the kitchen table. May God Amen. bless you. May God keep you. And may you let God use you. Have a great day. I'll see you next week here at Kitchen Table. 